0: Supreme Court justices have a distinctive power because they literally have the final word on the cases they hear. But ruling through words can also work against them. Through subtleties of language, the women justices might have more of an uphill battle to carve out respect than their male colleagues. But does the tone of Colorado's high court parallel the U.S. Supreme Court? This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. Do you think
1: that change has to happen overnight?
2: And do you think it's. Can
1: I I hear what you were about to say? What are those
2: numbers? I was really curious to hear those numbers. Uh. Well, suppose there were three
1: unrelated cases. Pardon? Suppose there were three unrelated cases, but the statute was passed.
0: What you just heard is audio from Supreme Court oral arguments in the 2015 session. In that first clip, you hear Justice Antonin Scalia cutting off Justice Sonia Sotomayor in the middle of her question. In the other one, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets interrupted by Justice Anthony Kennedy. But instead of conceding to her, Kennedy keeps going and Ginsburg's question gets buried. A study released last spring by law professor Tanya Jacoby and student Dylan Schweers at Northwestern University found these patterns aren't uncommon on the U.S. Supreme Court. They found female justices get interrupted by their male colleagues during arguments about three times more often than the other way around. These interruptions matter beyond simple courtesy. Oral arguments shape rulings. The study noted the women justices' influence might be reduced when their chances to ask questions are interrupted. I wanted to find out if the same gender dynamics are present on Colorado's Supreme Court and, if so, how that might impact decisions. But when I started listening to oral arguments, I found something completely different. As it turns out, the justices on Colorado's court really don't talk over each other. So I talked with chief justices and a former governor to find out what they think makes Colorado's highest court different. Their thoughts ranged from the non-political nature of the court to the personalities of the justices. But I also found that women judges in Colorado can still face implicit bias in how they're evaluated even though it doesn't come through in the way Supreme Court justices treat each other.
3: I actually know all of these four male justices, and they're all four of what I would say a completely different stripe than the people who have made it to the United States Supreme Court.
0: Former Governor Bill Ritter thinks Colorado's apolitical judicial selection process is largely responsible for the Supreme Court's non-adversarial tone. Colorado voters adopted the current committee process in 1966. It's known as the Missouri Plan. He said the state's nonpartisan selection process means Colorado's Supreme Court doesn't end up with the same types of domineering personalities so common on the U.S. Supreme Court.
3: They're not, I would say, they're not ideologues necessarily. They're, uh, if they are identifiable in terms of their politics, conservative or uh, progressive, then they are certainly more moderate than, I think, what is being generated by the political process in Washington, D.C. You know, they're not part of a political process. The nature of those folks is um, far more academic. Uh, even the people who come up through the trial lawyers ranks, they're pretty, they're pretty good people in, in, in terms of respecting others' views.
0: And Ritter thinks this kind of personality difference holds true on Colorado's Supreme Court regardless of gender. He has close connections with most of the current justices, so he has a good read on each of their characters. Justice Nathan Coates worked for him as a deputy district attorney in the 2nd District. He appointed Justice William Hood to the Denver District Court and Justice Richard Gabriel to the Court of Appeals.
3: These four would have not probably survived a political process. It's probably not a president. the United States who is identifiably either conservative or progressive, who would look at any of the four and say, that's the person I want. And and that helps explain, I think, a lot about what happens.
0: Chief Justice Nancy Rice also talked about the state court's apolitical inclination. Several times throughout our interview, she stressed that she doesn't think gender plays a role at all. And she said during oral arguments and during their decision-making, The justices work hard not to interrupt each other. If they do, they tend to then defer to the justice with the most seniority.
1: I think that almost all of the time people are asking questions because they really want to know the answer in Colorado. And sometimes I think on the United States Supreme Court, people are asking questions that aren't really questions at all, but rather little speeches or ways to make a point. But you combine that apolitical bent that most of us have with um, this courtesy that I'm, I'm talking about. I mean, people might have strong feelings about the case, but it rarely comes out in the way questions are asked.
0: Rice also had some thoughts about another part of the Northwestern University study. The study also looked at how much more frequently the women justices use what it called polite phrasing when they interject during arguments. They're more likely to preface questions with things like, excuse me, or can I ask you? On Colorado's Supreme Court, it's a mannerism conspicuously typical for both Justice Monica Marquez and Justice Richard Gabriel, two of the more vocal justices. Counsel, could I I jump in? Um, I am, I'm sorry, over here. Yeah, Counsel, may I follow up.
3: Over. Yes. Good morning. May I follow up as well on the deficiency piece. I, I, I think I understood what you said.
0: Rice said she thinks the different questioning idiosyncrasies of the justices has more to do with their backgrounds than any gender disparity. She herself tends to jump right into her questions, a direct approach she attributes to her experience as a trial judge.
1: The district judge approached The trial judge approach, as opposed to the appellate, the person who has never been a trial judge approach, uh, get to the point a little bit faster. I've noticed that, too, and I've certainly noticed that about me as I just get right to it.
0: Former Chief Justice Mary Malarkey joked about Justice Gregory Hobbs often being the first to jump in with questions during oral arguments. But she echoed Rice's thoughts about chalking up questioning styles to personality differences.
1: You know when I when I was on the court uh, with Greg Hobbs, he often was the first person to question to ask a question, and I used to sort of mentally say, oh, how long is it going to take him today?" And he'd be, you know, he'd be right in there, pretty you know, he couldn't let too much time go by, and he'd be asking questions. He was very engaged in in the uh, in the oral arguments. The, I often have read that the U.S. Supreme Court is you know, like Justice so-and-so is asking a question to influence Justice, justice and Justice A is asking a question to influence Justice B. You know, that, I don't think that happens on the state Supreme Court in my experience.
0: But it seems women judges in lower courts don't always have the benefit of a genteel dynamic. Kat Shea is the president of the Colorado Women's Bar. She had some stark numbers from the State Office of Judicial Performance Evaluation about non-retention recommendations for women judges as
2: recently as 2016. If you look at the period between 2000 and 2016, um, women judges received 61.6% of the do not retain or no opinion recommendations.
0: And between 2006 and 2016, the skew gets even more extreme.
2: That percentage goes up to 81.8 percent. So that's quite a large leap there. And of course, that's concerning. And, you know, we're not experts on statistics or anything like that. But it's certainly something that, um, and that was consistent with the numbers uh, as they were when we met with um, them in 2015. And so we felt that that was something concerning. And just wanted to talk about the potential for implicit bias in the judicial performance evaluation process. You know, one one example being um, what I think they call the double bind, where, um, you know, women are criticized for, you know, if they exhibit a lack of compassion or rudeness while they're on the bench, but if they display sort of what you would consider stereotypical female behaviors, um, they might be seen as uh, being weak or lacking in confidence. For example, um, in our judicial due diligence process, um, when judges are being nominated for judicial vacancies, we see comments such as, they're too nice. Um, and that's, you know, seen as a negative. Um, and, and one question that arises is, you know, are male judges being criticized for the same behaviors?
0: Ritter recalled two Denver judges, District Judge Lynn Huffnagel and County Judge Celeste C. DeBaca, who received non-retention recommendations in 1996. He said they would at times behave combatively or say outrageous things. But their performance wasn't judged in a vacuum.
3: And I would argue those women didn't behave any differently than many men on the bench. And this was a double standard at play in a really serious way. Because I think they were both absolutely qualified as district court judges, but they were graded based on how they behaved on the bench. And I would really argue that they behaved no differently than many male men on the bench, who were never, you know, booted, who were always retained when, uh, when there was a vote for their retention.
0: Testimony from the judge's non-retention recommendations in 1996 supports what Ritter had to say. DeBaca's evaluation described her as, quote, frequently rude and arrogant and having a, quote, serious pattern of inappropriate demeanor, lack of courtesy, and lack of compassion. Huffnagle received a similarly disfavorable review. The evaluation pointed to problems with quote, favoritism, prejudging, courtesy, compassion, and other characteristics relating to judicial decorum. So, even if sexism isn't a problem on Colorado's Supreme Court, that may not be true for women judges on the lower courts. So, how might the state address that? The type of implicit bias training done for the judicial nominating commissions could provide a clue. The women's bar vets candidates for the district court level and above. That includes following up on comments made about them by presiding judges or opposing counsel.
2: We take great pride in giving sort of a neutral um, memorandum to the governor, providing them with the information that we get as it is. Um, The names are redacted, so um, it is anonymous to an extent. Um, And so sort of giving our volunteers a sense of when to push back and maybe ask for more information. Well, what do you mean by she's too nice? So that we can help the governor better assess that comment to see, you know, is this a valid comment? You know, is this straight on, you know, this person is just really mean to people or is it, you know, based on some sort of potential implicit bias?
0: So I didn't find a hard hitting story about sexism on Colorado's Supreme Court. The politics and personalities just aren't the same as the U.S. Supreme Court. But the state's high court seems complex and dynamic in its own way. And it could mean a smoother experience for both the justices and the attorneys who argue before them. And there doesn't seem to be a silver bullet for solving implicit bias in judicial evaluations. But the work being done to address bias in judicial selections could be a clue for how to start. This has been Julia Cardi for Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado.